Good morning, I'm Pastor Jay, and it is my privilege after that musical feast to invite you to open your Bible Thank you, to the Old Testament, well done. to the book of Jonah. Very small book among what we call the 12, which are the 12 minor prophets. The 12. Pastor Tim right now is teaching an adult elective right now on the 12 minor prophets on Sunday mornings. I encourage you to consider doing that. And we are in chapter 3. This morning we are finishing a two-week series in the book of Jonah, uh, a very short book. We've said it hardly covers a page in the Bible. It's 48 verses. And this morning we're going to look at the missionary heart of God. One reason we hang these flags over here, flags of nations where some of our workers serve, is to remind us to look up and not be consumed with the 5% bubble we live in called Disneyland here in America, but to remember the unmedicated, the unfed, the unevangelized millions that are out there. And so Jonah is a call to remember that God is a missionary God. I want to begin this morning with a confession. I grew up in a Christian home. That's not the confession, but I grew up in a Christian home. Here's the confession. I never really developed much of a heart for missions. In fact, I had a pretty negative view of missionaries uh, growing up. I can still remember. It was a very vivid negative view. And then God used two things to grab my attention, kind of body slam me to the ground. Uh, in my view, missionaries, as a teenager, watching them come and go through our church, they seemed like people who were weird, didn't know what else to do, go to other places and bring home weird slides and strange trinkets and kind of bore us. And they just never seemed relevant to my life. Two things happened where God changed me internally, and he has continued to do that, to be quite honest. First of all, was a, uh, a sermon I heard in seminary chapel when I was going to seminary years ago. I was a pretty run-of-the-mill seminary student, just doing my thing, didn't have any real vision for the nations or missions. Dr. Robertson McQuilkin came to speak at our seminary, Trinity Seminary. He was president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary in South Carolina, he had been a missionary to Japan for 12 years and helped start, I think, five different churches. He, had, he, was a, he was a scholar, he was a missionary, and he was a passionate preacher. And he preached a very powerful sermon that day. And he closed it with a very memorable line that just pierced, caught me completely off guard. He closed his sermon that day in chapel by saying this. He said, when it comes to world missions, many are willing to go most are planning to stay. Many are willing to go, most are planning to stay. And I found myself doing something really weird that I had completely not anticipated. All of a sudden, I was up and I walked down the aisle with a small group of people that he had said, come forward if you're willing to be considered using God using you for world missions. I couldn't believe I was up on my feet and I went down and I stood there. Not only can I not believe it, my friends who knew me were shocked because that was not at all on my radar screen. And yet something inside me was moved, touched deeply by that. Fast forward, went in the ministry, still was pretty clueless about missions. Did our first tour of duty in our first church, still clueless to missions, went to our second church. Here's how clueless I was. When we interviewed at our second church in Michigan years ago, the chairman of the missions committee when he asked me about my vision for missions, it was so pathetic that when the church finally called us to be the passion wife, he and his wife left the church, citing the fact that I had no vision for missions, which he was right. He was correct. I was guilty of that. And then God did a second gracious thing. Shortly after taking that second church, for some reason, I ended up going on a mission trip to the Dominican Republic. I don't know how many of you have been to the Dominican Republic or Haiti. But they remind Becky and I of places like Uganda where we've been or uh, Philippines. Just I had never seen that kind of crushing, extreme poverty. 
I had never experienced. I grew up in Orange County, Southern California, and then Michigan. My dad was a middle-class engineer. I had never seen anything like it. Heard stories about it, but to walk around and see the stench, the poverty, it was, it did something inside me. I came home, and uh, to this day, I remember, Becky found me one day, one afternoon, right after I got home, I was standing in the garage, and I had tears in my eyes, and she said, what, what are you doing? Standing in the garage crying. And I said, our garage is bigger than the average home hut that I've been in for the last two weeks that had no running water. And here we have this beautiful garage that's bigger than the average home there. It isn't even close. Something's wrong on this planet. And God used that to really start changing, graciously start changing me further down the road till I... And I'm still on that journey of God opening my eyes to the nations, and I'm thankful for his patience with me. Jonah is about God's missionary heart. Last weekend, we looked at the first two chapters of Jonah, and we met a prophet trying to run from God. That in itself is utterly foolish. You can't run from God. But we learned that Jonah is not so much a book about a man and a fish, something like Hemingway's book, man and the Old Man in the Sea. That's not what it's about. This is a book about God. And the more you get into it and realize what a knucklehead Jonah was, the more you realize this isn't about a fish, this isn't about the Assyrians, this isn't really about Nineveh, this is a book about God and God's missionary heart and his love and compassion for lost peoples. And so this weekend we turn to the last two chapters, chapter 3 and chapter 4, where that missionary heart comes bursting forth. I have thoroughly enjoyed my study and digging for the last couple of weeks in this book, and it has stirred me afresh to this end. And so we're going to see a couple things in these last two chapters. One, in chapter three, God's compassion for all peoples, plural. And two, weird ending, Jonah's anger at God's compassion. This is the strangest missionary there ever has been. But God used him in profound ways to show us something. First of all, God's compassion for lost people. Last week we looked and learned about Jonah's book, that it's a book full of surprises. It's only 48 verses long. And scholars aren't even sure who wrote it, but you have a lot going on in 48 verses. You have an angry missionary who is self-centered. You have a storm at sea. You have a miraculous rescue. You have a prayer from inside a fish. The only one I know of in the Bible, that's pretty weird. You have a citywide revival. You have a prophet who was prone to self-pity, sat down in self-pity at the end of the book. Then you have a divinely appointed plant, a divinely appointed worm, and a divinely appointed storm. All that in 48 verses. Jonah was born in Galilee, came from the same region Jesus did. In fact, <coughs> excuse me, his hometown, Gath Heifer, was only a couple miles north of Nazareth. So he was Galilean. God called him as a young man to be a missionary in what is today we would call Iraq. It was at the heart of the Assyrian Empire. He is the only prophet we know of in the Bible that ran the other direction. God called him and he said, no thanks, and he went the other way. God called him to go to Nineveh, about 500 miles away, again in what is today modern day Iraq. And his message, his assignment that God gave him in chapter 1 was to go preach against Nineveh and its wickedness. That's his message. Not a flattering message, but that's what he was told to do. And again, Nineveh was a capital city in the Assyrian, Assyrian Empire, the largest empire on the planet at the time, massive. It had dominated the world stage for over 250 years. Let me show you just a couple of photographs, give you a little context. I showed a couple of these last week. This is an artist's reconstruction of what Nineveh looked like, and it's based on ruins that still exist, but it shows you the glory of Nineveh. Today, if you go there, next slide is the, the um, ruins which are still outside of Mosul in northern Iraq and they still stand to this day. And I, I said last weekend, a reminder that when the Bible says something and mentions things historically or archaeologically, geographically, and then you go dig in the sand, it's always there confirming that this isn't fairy tale or legend. This is true. You, you don't find that with the Hindu scriptures, the Upanishads or the Bhagavad Gita. You don't find that with the Book of Mormon or the Quran. But when you find something mentioned in the Bible, and if you can go dig and find there, there it is, just like God said, showing us that this book is accurate, right down to the 
closest detail. Sir William Ramsey, last century, uh, about 150 years ago, uh, was a professor of archaeology at Oxford, and he spent his summers going to what is today Turkey, Greece, to dig around to try to disprove the book of Acts. And the more he dug around, the more he found that confirmed the book of Acts to the point that he became a believer because of what he found in the sand that confirmed what was in the Bible. It's there just like God had said. Jonah wants to go the other direction. He has no interest in going to Nineveh. And so he wants to go instead to what we're told is Tarshish, which is probably over by Spain. The point is, it's the opposite direction three times. In the Hebrew, in the first paragraph of Jonah, it says he went to Tarshish. He went to Tarshish. He went to Tarshish. The point is, he went the other direction, exact opposite direction. Uh, let me show you just where Joppa is. Joppa is in Israel. It's right down by modern-day Tel Aviv, right over Becky in my head there is Tel Aviv in the distance. And then right behind us, you can see Tel Aviv in the forefront here is you have some of the ruins of Joppa right there. So it's a port city right today between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. And there are a couple other pictures. The ruins are still there. Again, Bible says it, and you dig in the dirt, and there's the ruins, just like it says in the Bible. Over and over and over again, you find this compelling truth. And you see it in Greece, you see it in Turkey, you see it in Israel, you see it in Italy. It's just, it's constant. And then another example, some of the dig... You can, if you're in Israel today, you can walk around, you can see the ruins of Joppa right there. And one more slide, interestingly, Napoleon marched through Joppa in March of 1799 when he invaded Palestine. He marched further north up to the Valley of Jezreel, which we falsely call the Valley of Armageddon. But that's the Valley of Jezreel, and he announced, Napoleon did, that that was the perfect battlefield. Interesting, prophetic proclamation in light of that probably is where the showdown will be between Antichrist and Jesus. And there Napoleon said, this is the perfect battlefield. So that gives you a little bit of context of Nineveh, Joppa, and Jonah, who was Galilean just like Jesus. Now last week we were reminded that the root, this is a very important lesson, of Jonah's disobedience, the root of my disobedience, the root of your disobedience. Young people, hear this, the root of your disobedience, of our disobedience, is a mistrust in the goodness of God. That's what it is. When I don't obey God, I'm really doing character assassination of, of Him. I'm saying, I don't trust His goodness. Jonah did not believe God had His best interest at hand and at heart. And it's a reminder that all of sin is rooted in a belief that God's will is not the best plan for us. All sin is rooted in a belief that God's will is not the best path for us. That's why I said last weekend that sin is not only evil, it's insanity. When you think about it, we convince ourselves, if I obey what God says, if I follow His blueprint, I'm going to be miserable. And you start seeing the insanity of it. And the irony is the more Jonah disobeyed what God called him to do, the more I do things my own way, the more of a mess I make out of my life, the more Jonah made a mess out of his life. And even more sobering, the more Jonah disobeyed God, not only did he make a mess of his own life, he endangered the lives of those around him. He put the sailors at risk. And so when we walk away from what God has called us to do, we're not only calling God on the carpet, we're not only doing character assassination of God, we're not only calling his goodness into question, we're making a mess of our own life and we're putting the lives of others in danger. And that is exactly where we're at with this crazy prophet Jonah. That brings us to chapter 3. God commands a fish with Jonah to vomit him up on the beach as if God is saying, okay, kind of like a director, take two. <laughs> let's, let's try this again. And so that brings us to chapter 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. This is very similar to the first command. It's left out of the message here, the Ninevites' wickedness. That's in the first one, but Jonah already knew about that. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I, gave, I give you. Well, Jonah already knew what the message was. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. And now Nineveh was a very large city. It was a Probably the largest city in the entire region, several hundred thousand people. In that time, a mega metropolis. It took Jonah three days to go through it. What's so encouraging? I want to stop right here. There's a lesson right here. 
that is just priceless. God is a God of second chances. I need a second chance. Every one of us here needs a second chance. Some of us need a third and fourth chance. God is a God of second chances, sometimes third and fourth chances. We see it with Moses. We see it with David. We see it with Peter. We see it with Jonah. We see it with King Manasseh. We see it with Nebuchadnezzar. We see it with King Ahab. Example after example after example of God's compassion. Don't ever convince yourself God's done with you or someone you love. God is a God of second chances. You never know till somebody's dead what God is doing or will do in their life. And Jonah stands as a great reminder that God is a God of second chances. <clears throat> this brings us to Jonah's missionary encounter in Nineveh and his dislike of the Assyrians. If you know your Bible, you know that Jews hated Samaritans. They didn't like them. Everybody hates the people group they live next door to, right? That's kind of how it all goes. Well, hatred's a mild word for how the Jews, <clears throat> how the Hebrews felt about the Assyrians. They hated the Assyrians. <clears throat> the Jews hated uh, the Egyptians, and they hated the Assyrians especially, and the Babylonians, because those are the empires that dominated them and crushed them and enslaved them. And so sending Jonah to that people is especially, you got to have some sympathy, that's especially a difficult assignment. I read an article just recently by a historian, Peter Prescar. He wrote it just a few months ago. It was called, quote, The Assyrians, appall the Appalling Lords of Torture. The Assyrians, the Appalling Lords of Torture. Now, I'm going to keep this PG. This is sanitized. Don't freak out. Don't have to run out of here with your kids. I'm not going to go into any kind of detail, gruesome stuff. But suffice it to say, as I said last weekend, when you think of Assyrians, to put it in modern context, you have to think of something like ISIS. Or, recent American history, one of the Native American tribes most feared by all other Native American tribes are the Comanches. If you've read anything about the Comanches, they invented and delighted in certain forms of torture, surely for the pleasure of, of making people suffer. ISIS is the same way, or Al-Qaeda... That's the Assyrian Empire. So you got to have a little bit of sympathy with, with Jonah not wanting to go there. It's not first on his agenda. Uh, Peter Prescott wrote this. The Assyrians created an enormous empire. And again, this, this is sanitized. I'm not going to get anything graphic here. Unfortunately for their enemies, the Assyrians mastered torture techniques. And then they bragged about it. The Assyrians depicted their torture in, in, in great detail on the walls of their imperial palaces. Last weekend, I showed one photograph of a relief, a stone relief taken from the palace of Sennacherib. It is today in the British Museum. I've seen it a couple times over in Britain. If you go to the British Museum, make sure to go to the Assyrian exhibit, the Lachish relief it's called, because Sennacherib invaded Lachish. And then he went back. And he had this massive stone relief made in his palace, and they have dug it up. And like all things, Britain stole it and took it to Britain and put it in their, library, in their museum. There it is today. And on that relief is depicted all the forms of torture that the Assyrians invented, gruesome things. They delighted in it. The Assyrians depicted their torture in great detail on the walls of their palaces. They intentionally advertised, this is key, their brutality as part of the psychological warfare. And then he goes on to describe these amputations and beheadings and impalings and all the things they did. I'll leave it at that. But they were a brutal, brutal generation, a brutal culture of terrorists, bloodthirsty killers. And God calls them on the carpet. He calls them on the carpet for their violence here and their bloodshed. Nahum calls them a city, calls an Nevite city of blood. So that you got to that that gets that gives us a little context for Jonah's hesitation to go to this place. I, I wouldn't be really excited necessarily either. Now this brings us to Jonah's missionary sermon. Let's go on to that. And let's be honest: in the annals of missionary sermons, this is one of the weirdest and one of the worst. Has to be. It's only five words in Hebrew. Now, it may be compressed. That's not unusual in the biblical narratives. Even Jesus' own sermons looks like they have been compressed some. The Sermon on the Mount, you can read in less than 10 minutes. 
And some of Jesus' sermons in Matthew are even shorter than that. So there's probably compression going on on some of these. And there may be some compression here in the Hebrew. But it's five reported words in the inspired text of Hebrew. That's it. It's a little bit longer in English. And here's the whole sermon in verse 4. It doesn't even take up all of verse 4. That's it. Jonah began by going through a day's journey in the city, proclaiming, here's the sermon, 40 more days and Nineveh will be destroyed or overthrown. That's it. No mention of Yahweh, no mention of God, no mention of repentance, no mention of the gospel, no mention of Messiah, no mention of sacrifice, no mention of giving up their polytheism, nothing. Just 40 days and Nineveh is destroyed. And then on he would go announcing this crazy sermon as he walked through Nineveh. The number 40, by the way, seems to be a number of judgment. Um, my Israeli tour guide that I do, do a lecturing with in Israel, uh, on one of our trips, he pointed out something I'd not really connected the dots on before. He showed how significant the, 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 the number 40 is in the Bible. I mean, I've seen the number 40, but he showed how it's a regularly occurring number in the Bible, and it's often connected to judgment. You got Noah, rain 40 days, 40 nights. You got the spies went into Canaan for 40 days. You got Israel in the desert for 40 years. And here you have Jonah. And uh, he goes and preaches this for 40, you know, in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. Now we now come to the response to Jonah's preaching. And we need to camp here for a few minutes because there is a, there's an issue in opinion, even among conservative Bible-believing scholars. I don't normally spend a lot of time on option A, option B, but we do need to at this, at this juncture. So let me read the response, verses 5 to 10, and then tell you the two prevailing opinions, and then I'm going to tell you why I think the evidence overwhelmingly goes with the traditional opinion. The Ninevites, verse 5, believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne and took off his royal robes and he covered himself with sackcloth, basically burlap. And he sat down in the dust, probably ashes. And this is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. Let me just remind you, the Assyrian Empire is the most powerful empire on the planet at this moment in world history. And the king, by default then, is the most powerful man on earth at this moment in world history. And here he is, and he takes off his royal robes and he puts on the equivalent of burlaps and sits down in the dirt, which was classic for repentance. But that's not where it ended. Then he issued a proclamation. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people and then interestingly, or animals, herds or flocks taste anything do not let them eat or drink. So this wasn't just a fast. A fast is no food, but you can drink. This is an absolute fast, no food or liquid. You can only do that, by the way, for a couple days. Medically, it's, it's dangerous. But let people, verse 8, and animals be covered with sackcloth. Even the animals were to be covered in burlap. Let everyone call urgently on God. And let them give up their evil ways and their violence. There's a key to their empire. They were a violent empire. Who knows, said the king. God may relent and with his compassion turn from his fierce anger so we will not perish. So he, when I say Jonah's sermon might have been compressed a bit, I think there's evidence right in here. He knows things and he's saying things that Jonah didn't explicitly say. So he, Jonah probably said a few other things that we aren't told. And the people, when God saw what they turned from their evil ways, he relented, did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Now, the question, here's the big question. When it says the Ninevites believed, was that genuine saving faith? That's the question. And it's not just the liberals over on this side with their opinion and the conservative Bible-believing scholars on this side with their opinion. I was surprised 
over the last couple of weeks, revisiting, because I preached out of Jonah off and on over the years, but as I went back and dug deeper than I have for a long time and started doing more spade work, I was surprised how many Bible-believing evangelical scholars are in the first camp, which is this. This was not real saving faith. And here's their argument. I'll just give you a couple of their arguments so you can just be aware. Number one, it's the text says that they believed God. I mean, you can translate the Hebrew, they believed in God, but almost no English translation does that for good reason. They believed God. They believed what? Well, they believed His message that if you don't stop your violence, I'm going to destroy your culture. Those that argue this was not genuine saving faith then go on to point out obvious things. They say there's no mention here of Yahweh. Uh, Yahweh, is, as the divine name, is used throughout Jonah, but in this narrative, it's not. Elohim is used. So they don't seem to be familiar with God's covenant name. There's no mention they gave up idols. There's no mention that they gave up their polytheism. There's no mention they became monotheists. There's no mention that they were circumcised or offered sacrifices. All it says, if you take it at face value, is that they believed God's warning that if they didn't stop the violence, he was going to destroy their culture. And so this view argues even Tim Keller and some others, D.A. Carson, they argue that what you have here is classic Ninevite response, Assyrian religion response, which was they heard what a tribal deity said, they fearfully obeyed and tried to stop calamity and appease an angry deity. And so at that level, they did repent in that sense, but it wasn't genuine saving faith. I think the traditional view has more going for it. I think it has a lot more going for it. And that is this, that it was genuine saving faith and that quite a few were actually converted in this city. Why? Well, first of all, verse 5, the word believed is a verb is put first in the Hebrew sentence. That's not normal word order, but you can change word order in some languages, Hebrew being one of them, to emphasize something. The word believed is put first to emphasize the immediacy of their belief. The king, secondly, calls for a fast, puts on sackcloth. as That's a classic sign of mourning over your city. He even had the animals do it. Thirdly, verse 8, look at verse 8. He issues this decree, let everyone, not just call out to God, call out mightily to God and turn from their evil ways. Another key is chapter 2, verse 9, which is a theme of the book. In fact, I think it's the key to the book, which is salvation comes from the Lord. That is a key sub-theme going out throughout this text. And that comes right before this narrative begins. So I think, it show, I think that that is pointing to that this narrative is now going to illustrate that. But I think the key to all of this in the coup de grace comes from Jesus himself because in Luke 11, Jesus is talking to unbelieving Jews and he is using the example of the Ninevites' repentance to shame the unbelieving Jews. He says in Luke 11.32, this is Jesus talking to the unbelieving Jews. He says, even the men of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah. I think it's pretty obvious that there was a fairly citywide revival here. of some, not, It doesn't mean every single person there was saved, but clearly when the king did this, there was some kind of revival going on and massive conversion. In other words, the theme of this book, ladies and gentlemen, young people, children, the theme of this book is a missionary God who has compassion even on bloodthirsty killers because he's a loving, compassionate God. And he is filled with mercy. And the theme of Jonah, and by the way, there's a couple ways you can um, emphasize something in Hebrew. You can change the word order. We've talked about that. But the other major way you emphasize something in Hebrew is you repeat it. So if you want to say, you know, a hole is a big hole, you don't just say it was a big hole. They didn't do that. They would say it was a hole, hole, or a pit, pit. Or a mountain, mountain. That meant it was not just a mountain, it was a big, huge mountain. Well, in this book of only 48 verses, if you just look at word count and repetition, the words Yahweh, God's divine name, and Elohim, which is more generic for God, those two words together occur over 40 times in just 48 verses. The word fish, only four times. The words Jonah and Nineveh, just over 20 times. 
the word Yahweh and Elohim over 40 times. It's not very hard to see. This book is about God, the one true God of heaven. And this is important. Who is both shown to be just and loving. Both of these are critical. Here, human beings by our temperament and our personality and our experiences in life almost always default to God's justice or to his mercy. It's hard for us to keep one foot in each camp very well. We just, we tend by default to be emotionally and psychologically, you know, we, we tend to see, oh yeah, yeah, I see his, or we see his mercy more. And this book reminds us God is both just and loving. The whole Bible reminds us of that. And if we're going to understand the biblical God and not just a God of our imagination, we need to see him as he is. It was God's justice that was threatening the Ninevites. Remember, he was going to destroy them because of their wickedness. There is, a, there is a day of judgment. Every human being will stand before God. There is a heaven. There is a hell. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this we have to face judgment. There is the justice of God, but he is also loving. And there is chapter after chapter, verse after verse in the Bible reminding us he is filled with compassion. He is filled with love. He is filled with mercy. And this book loudly announces that God even loves those who are the exact opposite of us, who are bloodthirsty killers, who hate him, who worship demons. He has compassion on them. And Jonah's a reminder never to separate God's justice from his love, his kindness from his severity. That's why you find verses like Romans eleven twenty two, which are so important. Note then both the kindness and severity of God. And once again, as human beings, we kind of default one way or the other. We're kind of in the kindness, mercy camp about God, and we don't like the verses about election and judgment and all that. Or we're kind of over in the justice, holiness camp, and we don't so much see the verses about His mercy and His grace and His compassion. It's both. It's far more complex than we could ever understand. By the way, 100 years after this revival, the prophet Nahum tells us Nineveh was right back to their old ways again. That's not surprising. When you look at any major revival in world history or in American history, often within 100 years, it's completely back. That doesn't mean God didn't move at all. You never know what God's doing. You never know where he's at. I heard Chuck Sundahl preach one time. He compared the way God moves to a moonbeam on a, cloudy, a partly cloudy night where the moonbeam shows up and then it disappears and it shows up over here. There's no predictability where it's going to show up and for how long. And I never forgot that analogy. And that seems to be how, you know, from our perspective, how it is in the Bible. And it's not a surprise. God's mercy all of a sudden breaks out over this very violent, bloodthirsty culture. And a hundred years later, it's gone. Look at it go, go forward just a couple pages in Nahum. Prophet Nahum which is, the whole book is about Nineveh, this time very negative, very much a judgment on Nineveh. When you get to Nahum, you've only turned a couple pages, but you've gone almost 100 years forward in history. So you're fast-forwarding almost 100 years in history here. The revival's done. The king of Nineveh and the king of the Assyrian Empire and all those people are dead and gone. Nineveh's back to its old ways. This is what Nineveh was known for and returned to. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims, the crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses, jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords, glittering spears, Many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses. That's what the Assyrians were known for. That's what Jonah was called to. All because of the wanton lust of a prostitute. He's comparing the Ninevites to a prostitute who've abandoned God, alluring the mistress of sorceries and who enslaved nations by her prostitution, meaning her spiritual prostitution, and peoples by her witchcraft. The Assyrians were given over to demon worship in the occult. Verse 5, I am against you, declares Yahweh Almighty. I will lift your skirts over your face. This was an act of shame. I will show your, the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with filth and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. Look at verse 15. 
There the fire will consume you, the sword will cut you down, they will devour you like a swarm of locusts, multiply like grasshoppers, multiply like locusts. Nahum is a reminder, a very important reminder, hear this, we can never assume that God's blessings in the past guarantee future blessing. You don't know. That's why you don't presume on the past. And there's a very important lesson looking at the book of Jonah and then a hundred years later looking at the book of Nahum. Never assume that because God automatically did this in the past that he's automatically going to do this in in the future. We don't know. That's why you never want to take it for granted when you're softening to the Lord saying, oh, I'll just put it off maybe some other day. You don't know if God will ever come back again and knock on the door of your heart. Jesus said, need to repent when God is working. That brings us to chapter 4. Where a strange story gets even stranger. Jonah gets angry at God because the Ninevites believed. So here you got a missionary who didn't want to go, who fled, went the other direction, was forced, thrown overboard, swallowed by a fish, vomited up on a beach, said go, he goes, he preaches a horrible missionary sermon as far as we can tell. They repent, they believe, and then he gets angry. I mean, this guy doesn't qualify for any mission agency or church that I could be aware of. Terrible. Look at verses 4, 1 to 3. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. As I read these, here's what Jonah is revealed as. Jonah is revealed to be little more than a petty racist with a rotten attitude. That's pretty much what he is. He's a petty racist with a rotten attitude. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. What seemed wrong? That the people relented and that God had compassion on them. I mean, this is just not so. And so he got angry. He prayed to Yahweh, isn't this what I said? Now, this is the beginning of his pity party. Isn't this what I said when I was still at home? This is why I tried to forestall and go to Tarshish. I knew you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. I knew it, and you just proved it, and I'm angry. I mean, we're talking nuts. We're just talking nuts. This is Jonah. That's why, once again, this isn't a book about Jonah, just like the New Testament. It's not about the knuckleheads we call the disciples. The Bible's full of knuckleheads. You and I are knuckleheads. Book of Judges, wow, talk about some knuckleheads. But the story is about God, a God who continually uses knuckleheads and loves to reach out and give his mercy and show his compassion on the least likely candidates, reminding us just who he is. He is a God of second chances. He is a God of mercy. He is a God of compassion. Don't ever give up thinking God is not able to do what you're praying for or not willing to do what you're praying for. God then supernaturally provides this. Jonah goes and has this pity party, sits down. God provides a a vine to grow up over him. Interesting, all the mentions of divine providence in this book. He provides a, a, a vine. He provides a fish. In chapter 1, then in chapter 4, he provides a vine and a worm, and he, he provides a wind. In fact, the, the, the word translated provided is the same word used in Exodus, Exodus 16, that God provided manna. It's a reminder of God's generosity to his people here, his kindness. The problem is Jonah took God's provision for granted and had a pity party. What's God's point? That Jonah was more concerned about plants than people. And God gets angry at him. God rebukes him. Look at 9 through 11. Jonah's rebuked. And then the book, like Nahum, ends with a question. Only two books end with a question. And this one, the last word, is livestock. Kind of an interesting ending. But God said to Jonah, verse 9, Is it right for you to be angry about this plant? It is. I'm so angry I wish I were dead. So if there's any hope that Jonah somehow had this (laughs) turnaround at the end, he just gets more of a train wreck here at the end of the book. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, 
Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people? We don't know exactly. That may be children. We're not sure, but it indicates this is a massive city. More than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also much livestock. Also much livestock. Jonah was more concerned about a plant than people, and at the end, God rebukes him for that. So, what's God's plan for Jonah? Take the gospel, go to a pagan city, a bloodthirsty city, and warn the Ninevites of impending judgment. Jonah goes the opposite direction. In doing so, he forgot a key missions principle in the Bible, which we see over and over again. Here it is. Israel was called to be God's chosen people, yes, but they forgot something. He didn't call them to be a cul-de-sac. He called them to be conduit for his love, God's love to the nations. They forgot that they were blessed to be a blessing. See, they just wanted to soak it in. Same is true with many people today. They come to church. They just do their thing. They go home. That's not biblical Christianity. If you just come, sit, and leave, that is not what a Christian does. That's not what God calls us to do. God calls us to be part of a local church. That's why we put the three words up that we do. Follow, connect, make. Follow Jesus. That's the entry point, being born again. But connection. Paul's 13 letters in the New Testament are all about the local church. Being involved and in the life and serving in a local congregation and getting into the life of that church and investing and being in each other's lives and then make, go make disciples, starting the process all over. Jonah forgot that he just assumed he was a cul-de-sac and he forgot that God chose the Israelites blessed to be a blessing. They were supposed, that's why I had Pastor Doug read Psalm 96 this morning. They were given a divine commission, the Israelites were, to take God's message to the nations and they sat on it the vast majority of the time. It's no great surprise then when Jesus is finishing his ministry in Matthew 28, what's he tell his disciples? He tells them to take the gospel to what? All ethne. We get our word ethnic from it. That's why we, again, why we put these flags up here. We don't have all the flags of all the countries, but these are the flags of where the people we have sent and some of our workers work. We want those up there to keep our vision up and remind us what God has called us to do. In Matthew 28, Jesus said, take it to Pontata Ethne, to all nations, all peoples, nations not meaning political nation states, that's a newer invention in world history, but all peoples. And the example of the 12 disciples, by the way, is very instructive. As far as we know from Eusebius, the first church historian who was Bishop of Caesarea in Israel about third century, pretty reliable historian as far as we can tell, John went to Turkey, Apostle John ended up in Turkey, he's buried today in Ephesus. Peter, as far as we can tell, went to Italy. Thomas to India. When Becky and I have been in southern India, Thomas stuff is everywhere. They have Thomas stationery stores, Thomas drug stores, Thomas pharmacy, everything's Thomas, named after Thomas, because there's a very strong tradition that Tom, Thomas went to southern India and was martyred there. Simon, as far as we can tell, Peter went to Britain. And pretty good evidence, Matthew went to North Africa. There's a great missions agency today called the Joshua Project. The Joshua Project estimates there are still over 6,000 distinct ethno-linguistic people groups that are unreached by the gospel, and some of them are in the millions of people. When, when, when missiologists use the phrase unreached people group, they mean less than 2% Christian. What's really haunting is that of those 6,000 unreached people groups, there are hundreds that missiologists now call unengaged people groups. That means no known believers, no known scripture, no known gospel witness, no believers, no church, no nothing. Hundreds of millions of people, sinners, lost in spiritual darkness, on their way to an eternity in hell, and nobody to tell them about the gospel. One of the things Becky and I have heard as a criticism of Western missionaries, as we've been out and about, is, oh, we don't need Western missionaries anymore. Let the locals do it. Ladies and gentlemen, young people, in a lot of these areas, there are no locals to do it. There's nobody there. And the question is, who's going to go? 
And so we regularly challenge and hope that some of our best God will raise up and send to the nations and continue to send out some of our best. Some of you sitting there right now going, not me. Don't count in me. I've got a nice, comfortable job in the suburbs. I'm not leaving and going to some crazy stan. <laughs> well, I'd be careful saying you're never going. I had a church leader one time said, I will never, I asked him to go on a mission trip with me. Just for two weeks, only two weeks, over to Asia. He said, I will never go, ever. His wife came to me, I've shared this before, his wife came to me on the side and said, keep praying for him. Holy Spirit's making him miserable. So I prayed the misery prayer. Oh God, make him miserable. And within three months, he came to me, almost, this is almost a direct quote, I give up, I'm going. And so he went just for the two weeks, I'll just go for two weeks. A couple years later, he moved there, joined our team in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Don't ever say, I'll never do. You never know what God's calling you to do. All right, time to land the airplane and the summons. Let's summarize the book of Jonah. Two things. Ready? Young people, I want your attention. You know most people get their call to the mission field before they're 15 years old? That's true. Most people, when you talk to missionaries, get their call to the mission field. It won't even round it up to 18. The vast majority have their call in place before they hit their 18th birthday. That's not true with everybody. God calls retirees. He calls some in middle age. We've seen that. But if you talk to missionaries, a large percentage of them had that call nailed down before they were 18 years old. So if you're here and you're under 20, I want you to hear me especially, okay? Two summons this morning. Number one. First of all, first order of business. Have you believed God? Have you cried out to God and done what the Ninevites did and turned from your sin. Isaiah 59.2 reminds us our sins, my sin, your sin, has cut us off from God, separated us from God, and we need to be reconciled to God. That's why he sent his only son Jesus to die as a substitute on the cross. The Bible says God is a missionary God. He's a compassionate father. The Bible shows God over and over again, especially Sermon on the Mount, to be a compassionate Father, willing to save any who will call on Him. And you say, well, how do I get right with God? What do I do? Well, Jesus in Mark chapter 1, verse 15 says, here's what you got to do if you want to get right with God. Repent and believe the good news. Well, what's that mean? Well, repent what the Ninevites did. They humbled themselves, they cried out to God, and they changed direction, and they forsook their wickedness. Quit the spin, quit the denial, and own up to your sin. And secondly, believe the gospel. Believe that Jesus is who he said he was, the way, the truth, and the life, the only Messiah, the only way to heaven, the only Savior, and took your punishment on the cross. That's the gospel. There's only two ways to die. Do you know that? You can either die in the Lord or you can die in your sins. You die in your sins, the Bible says you go to hell. You die in the Lord, you're on the new heaven, new earth. So first order of business, do you believe God? Have you believed God? Have you repented and trusted Christ? Lastly, ready? If you know Christ, I know, a lot, I know a lot of us here do. If you know Christ, what is your current role with the unreached millions? In Matthew 28, Jesus calls his church, meaning those that know him, to be involved at some level with the Great Commission, reaching all ethne. That doesn't mean everybody goes. Not a, there's a misnomer out that everybody's, every Christian's a missionary. That's not true. Every Christian's not a missionary. Every Christian's called to evangelize and share the gospel, but every Christian's not a missionary. A missionary, by definition, is someone who takes the gospel and crosses cultural barriers. You can do that in your own country if the, if the Lord's brought nations to you, and He has. We have nations all around us here right in the States. You can cross the... But not everybody's a missionary, but... If is God called you, and what are you doing, what's your role in helping the gospel advance to other peoples? The problem is it's very easy in an affluent culture that's saturated with the gospel just to become apathetic. I'm guilty of this. I mean, I'll be honest. One of the things I did as I started working on Jonah is I literally prayed, Oh God, I need a fresh stirring up myself in my own soul, in my own heart, about the nations. It's, it's just amazing how easily the whole thing cools down when you get involved in life. I can easily become apathetic about the spiritual darkness and about the suffering that goes on out there with war and with famine and with poverty. 
The Bible calls true Christians to be involved with the Great Commission, either with prayer or giving or sending or going. And so I'm going to close with the words of a 40-year-old pastor that says it a lot better than I can say it. And then we'll end. Sunday morning, October 25th, 1874. Young pastor, 40 years old, had the largest church in the world, as far as we know at that time, downtown London on Elephant and Castle. Charles Spurgeon, 40 years old, he preached a sermon, just a routine sermon he was preaching on Matthew 28. I read it last weekend, and I got to the end of it, and I said, whoa, i got to use that in the Jonah series. So, here's how he closed his sermon that Sunday morning on Matthew 28, by speaking to those in his congregation who knew Christ and challenging them about the Great Commission. And he says, a lot better than me, so I'm, I'm just going to quote Chuck here. Ready? I close this sermon this morning very practically. Dear brother, dear sister, how many of you have shared the gospel and with whom have you spoken with Jesus uh, about Jesus? Do not reply, well, I belong to a church which is already doing much. That's not the point. I ask then, what are you personally doing? Are you doing anything at all? Others say, well, I can't go be a missionary. Are you sure you can't? The heathen are perishing. They're dying by the millions without Christ. And Christ's last command to us is, go ye teach all nations. Are you obeying it? Another says, I can't go. I have family and I have many ties that bind me to home. My dear brother, then I ask you, are you going as far as you can? I wonder how much of you are giving financially to missions. If you can't go, close quote. The Bible says when it comes to the Great Commission, there's only three options. Ready? We can either be a sender, means praying and giving and being involved with those that go. We can either be a sender or a goer or disobedient. Those are the only three options. And so which are you this morning? A sender, a goer, or disobedient? May God continue to use our church. I'm so thrilled the way he's used our church to be ascending base to the nations. May he continue to do that in the years ahead of Christ tarries. Amen? Father, thank you for Jonah and this series. And thank you for this crazy prophet. Because we are this crazy prophet ourselves. We're petty. We pout. We mope. We accuse. We get jealous. We hold grudges. We do all kinds of crazy, sinful things. And in the process, we damage ourselves and we damage other people. And yet, we see your patience and your mercy and your compassion. I pray this morning for those who don't know you here that they would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray for those of us who are Christians here this morning that we would up our game when it comes to the unreached millions and ask, oh God, what is it you're calling me to do? And I pray, God, you would send some of our best sitting here this morning to the nations in the years ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.